Good morning. We're going to be reading in Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17 this morning, going all the way through chapter 14. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by a night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Belzephon, and you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his, and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahirath and in front of Belzephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that you shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry, dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. 
all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Thank you very much, Sarah. Church, how are you doing this morning? That wasn't very good. Church, how are we doing this morning? Are you happy to be here? All right. Gary, like, man, energy level is, the rest of you guys got to catch up. Well, my name is Brandon. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And as, as I always say, that means, uh, because I mean it, uh, that I get the, the honor and the privilege uh, at different times to stand before you and, and to share God's word with you. It's something that I love to do. I truly consider it to be an honor uh, because God's word is powerful. Amen. And we're going to take that whole passage that Sarah just read so wonderfully for us, did such a great job, and uh, see what all God has for us to, to glean from that this morning. But before we do, I want to say that uh, a little something about myself that isn't really significant or important, but you may not know. Uh, I really love Still there? There I am. I'm going to wait to see if this thing stays on. Yeah, we're good. I'm just going to go with it. I'm a big fan of movies, and I like all types of movies. And I especially like uh, the, the, the kind of underdog movies, if you know what I'm talking about. The, the, the movies like Rocky or, or even like maybe like Hacksaw Ridge, like the, the movies of the Karate Kid, you know, like just the, the true underdog story of like this, this guy or this team of people, this group of people who seem to be up against really insurmountable odds. And you just don't expect them to overcome at all and have any measure of success, but they do. And you can probably see where this is going. But the movie that I think of most often, and I don't know why, this just kind of came to me as I was doing my studies this week, and like I realized that I think of this often in terms of relation to, because I think of, of Israel oftentimes as, as just like this, this underdog of a group of people. Right, if you know the, the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament and just in, in world history, you understand that they've been up against some pretty, uh, pretty tough odds at different times, and yet they, they seem to continue, especially throughout Scripture, they seem to continue to overcome those odds. So when I think of Israel, I think of underdog story. When I think of underdog story, I always, always, always think of the movie Rudy. 
right? Anybody seen the movie Rudy? If you haven't, you should. It is a phenomenal story, true story, about a, a guy by the name of Rudy Rudiger. Uh, Rudy's not his first name, so his parents weren't just really mean calling him Rudy Rudiger. Uh, but that's, that's the, the, the nickname that he got. It's a true story about Rudy Rudiger. And, and Rudy, aspi- uh, he, he had aspirations to play football for Notre Dame, right? And if you don't know, uh, within college football, Notre Dame is, is just one of those universities that they're known for football, and there's a lot of heritage there. And Rudy so desperately wanted to play football for Notre Dame. There was a problem, though. Rudy was like five foot nothing, and he was tiny, right? So not exactly had the, did he have the stature. Uh, Rudy wasn't really.
throughout the plagues, we see these dramatic occurrences happening for, on, on Israel's behalf, happening to the Egyptian people. So God is determined to see his people through. And not, not that we couldn't have guessed it but, it, but it's also the Lord who gets all of the credit. Like Rudy got the credit. He got hoisted up on the shoulders. He got all the accolades. People were cheering his name as they took him off the field. That's not Israel. The Lord is the one who gets all the credit for delivering this, this underdog nation, this, this group of people, which is Israel, bringing them to, to freedom and salvation against Egypt. And really, the, to, to me, in my mind, the, the highlight or the pinnacle of this really entire Exodus story is found in this passage that we're reading today. And it's found in verse 22 of chapter 14. It says that the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can you imagine the scene that that must have been? That they walked through the midst of the sea on, on dry ground. The crossing of the Red Sea, I think, is possibly one of the most widely told, widely circulated, truly miraculous, and hear me, also truly terrifying events in all of the Old Testament. And it shows all of mankind, including us today, that the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Moses, he is the one true God. Pharaoh isn't God all of these other false gods, they are not God. The God of the Hebrews is showing up and he is saying, I am the Lord alone. That's when we, when we entered into this series on Exodus, we saw the Lord, one of the very first things that he told Moses, he said, I'm going to show Pharaoh that I am God. And he will not share his glory with another. He is sovereign over all creation all of it, and he will absolutely carry out his will no matter what. There is nothing, not a single thing, church, there is, there is nothing and there is no one that will ever prevent him from carrying out his will. And so a couple of weeks ago, when we were in chapter 12 of Exodus, we saw that God struck down the firstborn, the firstborn of Egypt, and he was going to do this unless the people sacrificed a spotless lamb. And they covered their doorposts with the sacrificial blood. This was a command that was given by God to Moses. He then relayed it to the Israelite people, and they did exactly this. Right? And, and in doing so, they observed the very first Passover. They had a meal which included the lamb that they sacrificed along with unleavened bread. All right, we covered all, JT covered all of this weeks ago. The story tells us next, though, in that passage of Scripture in chapter 12, that there was a great cry throughout the entire land of Egypt. In the middle of the night, people wake up and they're wailing because it says there wasn't a house, and that would be Egyptian house, there wasn't a house where someone was not dead. It says that in the text, there wasn't a house where someone was not dead. And so as a result, Pharaoh finally concedes Right, He finally yields. Up to this moment, he has been prideful. He has been stubborn. He has been arrogant. But he finally concedes to the will of God in letting God's people go. And we think, 
in this point of the story, like, finally, right? Like, like finally. I don't think it would have, I could say it now on this side of history, but like, I don't, I don't feel like it would have taken me that long. But we also know the pridefulness of Pharaoh's heart, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? We don't have time for all of that, which we'll cover it a little bit here in, in a few moments. But we think like, finally, Pharaoh, finally, just let him go. All of these things, 10 plagues, the 10th the being the worst, all of these things, and he still won't relent. But finally, he lets them go. But wait, something happens, right? You, you heard the passage read, so you already, you already know. You don't have to, to guess what happens. But let's look again. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Chapter 14 of Exodus, verses 1 through 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. Verse 4 And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camped by the sea at Pihaharoth in front of Baal Zephon. So Pharaoh has a change of heart. And he decides that he has made a mistake in letting the enslaved Jews go. And we have the advantage of being on, on this side of the story. We know that the Lord is at work here. The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart. We're even told why. It's for the purpose of God's glory. To let his name and his might and his glory be known to the world. Not just to Egypt. Certainly to Egypt, but not only. Because we're still talking about this story today. So Pharaoh gathers his army and he goes after Israel with the aim of either bringing them back to Egypt and enslaving them once again or just completely destroying them. Right? He's thinking, if I, if I can't have them, no one will. If, but he still, he still doesn't see who he's up against. And so God directed Moses to lead Israel to turn back and camp in a place. Listen, if, if you don't know the layout of the land, God is sending them into a place that militarily is a trap. Like, it's a death box. You don't, they, they're not going to get out. Based on their own talent, ability, they're, they're not going to get out. They're going to be hemmed in, water on one side, mountains, and an army. They're stuck. And Pharaoh knows this, and so that's why he goes out. God had a definite plan 
to, to glorify himself by delivering a helpless Israel and by destroying Pharaoh's army. And it's in this act that, that God is going to reveal his sovereign power and his will over nature by doing something unimaginable, something that hasn't been seen really up to that point or since. And church, listen, we believe as Bible-believing, Christ-following, proudly professing Christians, this is a true story. This isn't hyperbole. It isn't myth. It isn't made up. This is a true occurrence that happened in, in history. We put that much faith in the word of God, that God has protected his word. He has kept it true so that we can know that these things that we read are true. God's going to divide the sea and he's going to open a passage in the waters for Israel to pass through. And see, that defies the laws of nature, I know And God created the laws of nature, I believe. But I also know that God isn't restricted by those laws. Church, you need to know that we serve a God who can make the tide turn wherever and whenever he wants. And for the purpose of delivering his people in this story, he stood between them and the Egyptians in something that I have a hard time even envisioning this pillar of cloud and fire. I don't know if this is like a a twirling tornado that's got fire in it or if it's like an eruption from a volcano. I don't know what it looks like, but I know that it it was large enough and visible enough that it led the Israelites by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. But then not only that, it was big enough and, and intimidating and formidable enough that it's, it, he, it says that God swings around to the backside of Israel and gets in between them and Egypt, and it prevents them from getting anywhere near each other. The, the, the army of Pharaoh can't approach Israel because God is standing in between them. And while that's happening, God divides the sea so that the Israelites could safely walk through on dry ground. Now, among the theories regarding the route of Exodus, because there are a lot of, of theories, and I understand why, because if, you, if you're a fan of history, curiosity really gets the best of you here. It certainly does for me. Like, I, I can't tell you how many rabbit trails I had to, to, to prevent myself from running down while preparing for this sermon. I'm like, where, where is this on the map? And like, why, you know, what kind of, what kind of historical and geographical evidence do we have of this today? And I'm not going to bore you with all of that, but just know that there is a traditional route towards Mount Sinai, right, which is where the Israelites are going, and that's where God meets Moses and his people and gives the Ten Commandments. That's where they're headed. But the Israelites' journey starts in, in really the land of Goshen, right, where we've been most of this story, in Ramesses, and, and then they journeyed to, to Sukkoth. And those are the only two sites that we know exactly where they are because we have evidence of them. The rest of them, we don't know. But they traveled from there, it says, to, to Etham, to, to Pihaharath, where they crossed the Red Sea, and then they traveled to, to Merah and Elam and Rephidim and to finally to Mount Sinai. This is where we're going in the story. And this is in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. Now, my, my reason for sharing all of that is 
I'm just gonna use this if I have to. Are we good? We're good? All right. So the reason I bring all of this up is to say God didn't have to take his, his people, the Israelites, uh, along this path. This was really, uh, I, I don't mean to, to call into question God's doing because we're going to see there, there is a will in all of this, but this is really a, an unnecessary path for them to take. I think there's a few things at play here that we, we ought to see. Although the Lord has very clearly up to this point, he, is, he has shown his people that he is going to be victorious no matter what. Through all of the plagues, he brings his people through victoriously. He's going he's to keep them from entering into the land of the Philistines at, at this time. And I think he, he merciful, mercifully chooses to take them on another route that's not going to lead them into immediate armed conflict with, with another people. However, this, this route also uh, it, it results in, as, as we've seen, Israel being hemmed in, in in a really precarious spot. They're, they're hemmed in between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies. And as we know, there, there will be a time that's coming soon in this book of Exodus where the Lord will call Israel to trust him to fight through them, right? To, to fight through them. But right now, once again, he's going to show them how he's going to fight for them. Out of nearly all of, of the biblical accounts of the crossing of the Red Sea, right? Because we have references to this event in other passages of Scripture. The, the water is almost always referred to in a, in a Hebrew phrase, which is yam sup. And this Hebrew phrase is the same one that's in this passage of Scripture. And the reason this is significant, because sup is translated as a word that means the end. And so... Biblical scholars believe that Yom Sup literally means the sea at the end, or that is the sea at the end of the land of Egypt, which would be the Red Sea or the Gulf of Suez. I'm not going to get into how I don't think it's any of the marshy lakes uh, at, at north of the Red Sea. But I will say this quickly. Uh, in, in the Septuagint, uh, which again is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It translates Yom Sup into the Greek, into literally the Red Sea. And it does that in this passage and in others. Also, in, in every certain reference, like every passage of Scripture that, that uses the phrase Yom Sup in the Bible, all of them mean the Red Sea. And, and it's it's referring to the northern extensions, which were either the, the possibly the, the Gulf of, of Aqaba, which is further uh, to, to the west, or to the east, rather, or more likely to the, 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 the Gulf of Suez or, or the Red Sea. Now, I'm sharing all of this for a reason. It's believed that it's the Red Sea. We, we don't know with any kind of certainty where the Exodus route took place. But we can trust the biblical account that reports this mighty miracle that God did to deliver Israel through a deep body of water that was like a wall on both sides of them. And also subsequently drowned a pursuing Egyptian army. God's purpose in leading Israel through the wilderness, instead of taking them through along the coast of the Mediterranean, through the land of the Philistines, 
was for a number of reasons, I think. And I think many of these we can apply to our own lives today in, in certain ways. But one reason is, is certainly so that his sovereign power could be put on display. Do you understand this word sovereign? That, that God rules over everything without any, any person or, or, or any other force in nature contesting that. God will do absolutely what he desires to do. That is, that's his sovereign power and his will. Nothing will stand in the way. Even our own desires. So God is desiring to, to put his sovereign power on display on behalf of bringing the Israelite people through the Red Sea. In addition to that, I think it was clearly done to strike the final blow to Egypt, to humble Pharaoh. The story doesn't tell us. We don't know whether or not he survives the Red Sea. I, I tend to think that he survived it. The Bible gives us many, many different accounts of of uh, political leaders and kings dying throughout history. It it doesn't have it here, so I tend to think that he survived, but this is a final blow, humbling Pharaoh in in Egypt. And then also this path that leads them through the wilderness, as I already said, we know that this is where God will give his people the law. And additionally, as as I said, the, the people of God are not yet fit for war. They have been broken down and worn out through years of slavery. And I don't think that it would have been easy for them to turn their hands very suddenly from a shovel or a trowel to a sword. They weren't properly organized as a people group to this point. And then lastly and ultimately, God does a great number of things. If you know the story of the, of, of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, he humbles them. He tries their faith so that they might truly and sufficiently trust in the Lord. And throughout all of this, God is so merciful and so gentle with the Israelites. The cloud that was given was given to, to lead and, and to, to guide them through their wilderness journey. And what an amazing provision that would have been. Because this is an uncharted territory. And what an amazing provision to, to have such a perfect and infallible guide on this journey to lead them. It says that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way. And in a similar way, the Holy Spirit has been given to us as Christians to direct our steps along the narrow path of this life, right? Because we we enter into our own times and, and periods of wilderness and wandering and feeling lost and questioning. And so we're given the Holy Spirit, much in the same way that the Israelites were given the, the pillar of cloud and fire to lead the way. And again, I know that that's not an exact comparison because the the Israelites literally saw this thing and we do not visibly literally see the Holy Spirit with our own eyes, but we we sense the Holy Spirit at work in our life, do we not? But coming back to the story, 
God moves Pharaoh. He hardens his heart in order to change his mind so that he will pursue after the Israelites. And this decision, as, as we know, leads to the destruction of the Egyptian army, which very well may have prevented the Egyptian army from, from attacking the Israelites once they made it into the promised land. So Pharaoh is being used to accomplish God's will. I touched on this when I, I preached on uh, the first, uh, however many it was, handful of plagues um, that, that God used Pharaoh. Right, that God steered Pharaoh's heart. He hardened his heart. He led Pharaoh to, to make the decisions that he did to accomplish God's will. But I also said that that Pharaoh was a sinful, idolatrous man who, hardened his, who did a great job in, in hardening, hardening his own heart. And his pursuit of Israel was very much out of his own pridefulness and his desire for revenge. So we get to, to verse 10. Let's pick back up. Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So Israel sees Egypt's army descending upon them, and they are stricken with fear. And as if all of the plagues weren't enough for God's people to see that, that, that they could rely on God, that he is a dependable God. God calls them to fear him over every other nation and army on the face of the earth. But that's not what they do. Instead, in, in their fear and in their doubt and in panic, they turn to Moses and they say, what, what have you done to us in bringing us out here? You, you, you brought us out here to die. It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt and to serve the Egyptians. After all that God had, had done in Egypt, they still have such a hard time seeing. And it's easy for us to be hard on the Egyptians, and rightfully so, but I'm going to get to us here in just a minute. Unfortunately, this won't be the last time that the people of Israel forget the power of God and they blame Moses for their troubles. When the people of Israel say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians, they're looking at their circumstances all they see is what's right in front of them. They see the trouble that they're in right now. Their circumstances and their surroundings, and they're fearful. 
and they doubt God. They don't trust the Lord. And they're forgetting the fact that the Lord has brought them through to, to this place in this time. And the thing is, is we, we see throughout Israel's history that the Lord is so patient and so merciful in never leaving them to themselves or to their circumstances. God is a faithful God. He is a loving father. He doesn't forsake his children ever. Even in our own lives, church, when it seems darkest, I promise you, God is right there. As in as much control as he always is. And I can think back on my own life in my times of of feeling despair and feeling lost and feeling like God is miles and miles away. And I look back now and I see how he was right there the whole time. And it's because he was right there. That's the only reason that I'm even standing up here today. Because I got to the place where I didn't trust the Lord. I didn't rely on the Lord. But God was faithful. And he held fast. What a great song that was that we sang, to, to, to hold fast. Do you understand? I just looked it up while we were singing. To hold fast. To remain securely adhered to something. To remain determined and unyielding. As in one's position. And that's the Lord. Unyielding, unwavering. Faithful. So whatever the Lord calls his people to face, whether it's the the Israelites in the story of Exodus or us today, whatever God calls his people to face as a result of fearing him and having faith in him is in fact better than simply just staying alive. Right? For the Israelites to go back to Egypt and just be servants, be slaves there, they think that that's better than dying and being faithful, and trusting the Lord. It makes me think of the story of, of, of Daniel's friend, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They, they won't bow to, to the king. And so they're going to be thrown into the furnace. And you know their response? Their response is, the Lord will, will save us. We will not bow down to you. We will only serve the Lord, and the Lord will save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow to the king. So Moses tells the people, do not fear. Do not be afraid. They're being called once again to, to, to be fearless in the Lord. That no... No, no nation that is against them, no army, no circumstances. They don't have to be afraid of any of those, but just to watch the Lord fight for them and therefore trust and fear him. You know, in, in contrast to all of this, on, on one hand, what we see with Israel and with us is the salvation of Israel, it was completely dependent upon God's working on their behalf, right? He did all of the hard work. As I, I've said to you before, he did all of the heavy lifting, He's working on their behalf. They have nothing left to fear at all. God has more than proven himself to them. But on the other hand, 
they were to go forward and to cross the sea. And we'll see this time and time again in the the journey of the Israelites into the promised land where they have to step out in faith, trusting the Lord. But God says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? I think he's saying that there there are some matters that don't require us to anxiously cry out to the Lord, but just rather to to just believe in faith. Having trusting obedience based upon the promises of God and his word. And once again, church, that's why this book is, is so important, why it's so significant, because we believe it is the truth. And so we stand upon the promises that are in this word in obedient faith. If it weren't true, we couldn't do that. But aren't we guilty of the very same thing as Israel? We hesitate to do what we know the Lord has commanded. We know we need to go forward in faith that the Lord has worked out our salvation, that that his his plan is in place and we can trust him in that, and that he's going to continue to work out our salvation as we obey him. But we're fearful. And we lack faith. We forget that if if he has united us to his son, Jesus, then he will absolutely see us through to full restoration. Do you know that? That if you're here this morning and you are in Christ, you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, then then God will, will work out his salvation in you. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, so Christian, no, God is with you. He is always at work. And then we, we come to verse 21 throughout the rest of the chapter. Picking up verse, chapter 14, verse 21. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea all Pharaoh's horses his chariots and his horsemen and in the morning in the morning watch, the Lord in, a, in the pillar of fire and of a cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw Egypt, the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And hear this. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. If you look at this passage, you'll see that the Lord dominates this scene. It says in verse 21 that the Lord drove back the sea. In verse 24, the Lord looked down on the Egyptians and threw them into panic. Verse 27, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day. He is God and there is no one like him. He will carry out his will. All of this had a purpose. Yes, that God may gain glory over the Egyptians, but not only that. All of those who, who remained in Egypt, and we know as the story spread, they, they know, they learn, they hear that the God of the Israelites is the Lord. He is the great I am. There is no other like him. But it also says that the people feared and believed in the Lord. The Israelites, they feared and believed in the Lord in faith, which is the proper response to God's mighty acts of salvation. Right? His faithful reverence. Right? If, if, you, if you weren't brought up in the church, you might not know the term reverence, but reverence is just a very appropriate and loving fearfulness in the way that a child might fear their earthly father when they're being disciplined or scolded. The Israelite people respond in faithful reverence, not because God is a bully or because that he's like the Greek gods. If, if he doesn't get his way, then he's going to throw a temper tantrum and the Israelites are going to be on the receiving end of that. No, they fear God because there is no one like him. So they have faithful reverence, but they also have a reverent faith. They just know that they believe through all of what God has done that they can place their faith in him and know that they are secure that they are held fast by the hand of God. The dividing of the, the Red Sea, we, we, we will find out later uh, in the book of Joshua, is, is the terror of the Canaanites, right? Another people group that uh, oppose Israel. They, they hear of this story and they fear Israel because of it. It's also the praise and the triumph of the Israelites that, that they were the people that, that God carried through the midst of the sea. We see that in the book of Psalms and other, other passages. The Israelites drowned in it was, was typical of, of the final ruin of, of unrepentant sinners, that, that God has the final say. He showed his power. He opened up a passage through miles of water for the Israelites to pass through, and then he, and then he crushes the Egyptian army. Today, the, the, sh the, the best that, that I am aware of, the shortest passage across the northern part of the Red Sea, the shortest 
passage is seven miles, roughly. And so if that's the same as then, and I'm not saying that it is, we can just say, we can assume that, that the Israelites passed through maybe roughly seven miles of, of a divided sea. And, and from this, they learn to believe, as so do we, that God can bring his people through the greatest of difficulties. They were hemmed in. They had nowhere to go. God's people went through the sea. It says they walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea. And this was done in order to encourage God's people in all ages, as I've said, to trust him. Right? If you're here this morning and you believe this story is true, and I hope you do, then, then you should believe that you can trust the Lord. We may not see these kinds of occurrences happening today, not because they can't, for whatever reason, in God's sovereign will, he chooses not to. But we believe that he can still do these things and we trust in him. Because if he could do this, then what, what can he not do? What won't he do for those who fear and love him? In the book of Romans, Paul writes in chapter 8, you don't have to flip there. It's just a couple of short passages, but listen intently. In verses 31 through 33 of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, church, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This doesn't mean that all of your life will just be sunshine and, and lollipops. You, you're going to face trials and tribulations, much like the Israelites did, that will test your faith. Right? This passage that, that I quoted in Romans chapter 8, it doesn't mean that whatever you wish, whatever you desire, as long as you fear and love the Lord, it will be so. We will face trials and tribulations and difficulties just as the Israelites did. And, but here's, here's what that passage means. Here's what you should take away from it. We have a Lord who is working for us in absolutely everything we face. So I'm going to let that just hang out there for a second. And I want you to think about your own life and the things that you've faced. And maybe the things that you will face. I know you don't know what those are yet. But in everything that you have gone through in your entire life, God has been right there working all along, expecting, desiring, demanding your faithfulness, your, your obedience, your trust in him, just like the Israelites should have. And I can share with you that I have had instances where I failed at that. I entered into a, a proverbial wilderness in my, in my own life, and, and I failed to trust the Lord. Things got dark, and I feared what, what was in front of me. My circumstances caused me not to trust the Lord. 
But thank God he is faithful and he allows you to look back and to see how he is journeying with you all along, working all the while. Not only that, in this passage, we need to see that there is also a just and righteous wrath of God uh, upon his enemies. The ruin of sinners, as we see in Egypt, is oftentimes brought on by their own rage, their own pride, their own ego, and that's no different today. The Egyptians could have left Israel alone. They could have let them go, but they wouldn't. And now that they have pursued after them, they would very much like to flee from the face of of God, but now they can't. And apart from God's sovereign intervention, sinful men won't be convinced that those who persecute God's people, they do it to their own harm. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior, then, then you fall into that category as an enemy of God. And I know that's harsh language because we like to think, well, God loves everyone. God is going to forgive everyone, but he's not because he is a just and righteous God and he will punish sin. And all of us, apart from God, we are sinful human beings and we desperately fall short of the will of God. We are lost in our, in our trespasses and sins. We are dead. And so if that is you here this morning, then, then I, I plead with you. Here in, in, in a few moments, we're, we're, going, to, we're going to sing songs and, and we're, we're going to pray. And, and I want you to respond. If you don't know the Lord, you are an enemy of God. And I don't want you to leave this building as an enemy of God. There was a, uh, one, one, of, one of my favorite uh, biblical scholars uh, who, who happens to be Baptist, uh, his name is Arthur Pink, or A.W. Pink, and he wrote in his commentary on Exodus something that I couldn't say as well, so I'm just going to read. While men see God's works and feel the benefit, they fear him and trust in him. Behold the end to which a Christian may look forward. His enemies rage, and they are mighty. But while he holds fast to God, he shall pass the waves in safety, guarded by that very power of his Savior, which shall come down on every spiritual foe. The enemies of his soul, whom he hath seen today, he shall see no more forever." And I didn't even realize that the phrase hold fast was in that quote. So um, that's pretty cool. But in this way, in, the, in this act of God parting the Red Sea, I, I want you to see some similarities uh, to, to our own salvation experience. The Israelites, as I've said, they're, they're hemmed in. Pharaoh's army is there representing certain death. God provides a way of life and safety for the Israelites by splitting the sea and allowing them to cross over safely onto dry ground. 
But not only that, he also, being God, he destroys the Egyptian army. Those who are seeking to harm his people. And he does so in the very same waters that he parted for the Israelites. And I think this is in many ways, as I've said, similar to our own lives, our own salvation experiences. Because prior to experiencing the saving work of Christ, we were slaves to sin. Our only options at that time were slavery and death. Yet God. What a great phrase, yet God, or, or but, but God. He shows up and he provides a way of life and safety in the form of a savior whose name is Jesus. And he took upon our sin all upon himself. And he put his righteousness on each of us. And all of the wrath of God was poured out on our Savior as he was hung on the cross. And then after that, we we enter into the baptismal waters, which is, I love baptism so much because of what it portrays. We we enter into the baptismal waters and, and we give witness that God has crushed our enemy. Do you know who our enemy is, church? It is Satan and sin and death. God has crushed it. Yes, we will all die physically unless the Lord returns before that day. But if not, just know that that God has, has crushed. He has defeated our enemy of Satan, sin, and death. Just like he crushed Pharaoh's army under the waves of the Red Sea. And how quickly we, like the Israelites, forget what God has done. We forget that God has delivered us. That he has brought us out of slavery and death. Brought us into life. And all we have to do is just faithfully obey him. After he has proven time and time again that he is worthy of our faithful obedience. But we forget and we enter back into sin and we say outlandish things like it would have been better for us to go back and be slaves. At least we would be alive. But God says that isn't life. I give life. You find your life in me. Very quickly, let me, let me wrap up in this way. Four things I want you to take away from from this passage of Scripture. And as I said, I'll try to move quickly. Uh, No, number one, God is sovereign over all the trials that come in your life. Every trial that you have been through and will be through, God is sovereign over that. God directed Moses to lead the Israelites to turn around and to camp somewhere where they would be trapped. As I said, it it seems like suicide from a military standpoint. Pharaoh got the report and he thought, they're sitting ducks, I'm going to go get them. But that whole entire situation was orchestrated by the hand of God. 
So as bad as that looked for the Israelites, God was sovereignly ruling over it. Number two, God sovereignly ordains trials for our ultimate good. And this is one of the hardest lessons, at least for me, this is one of the hardest lessons to learn. That God sovereignly ordains the trials in our life for our ultimate good. Romans chapter 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Again, that does not mean, church, that everything is just always going to go exactly the way that you want or think that it should. But that does not mean that that experience is not for your good. And if you trust in the Lord in the midst of that trial, I promise you, that when the Lord brings you out of that trial, it will have been for your good. And I can also tell you from personal experience that if you don't learn that lesson in the midst of the trial, you'll get that trial again, most likely. Number three, God is sovereign over the hearts of all people, even those who hate and defy him. God repeatedly Let's Moses know that Pharaoh's change of heart came about because he was doing it. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 affirms this. It says, The king's heart is like channels of waters in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. So God is sovereign over the hearts of all people, even those who hate and defy him. Fourth and final. God ordains trials to reveal his glory and to teach us to trust him. So I want you to think about your own life and the trials that you've faced, maybe a trial that that you're in the middle of right now, and ask yourself, are you trusting God? Do you believe that he is big enough, powerful enough, good enough, to carry out his will for you in this trial and to know that it's for your good. And that could be especially challenging because church, I mean, we we don't want to invite pain and discomfort. We, We want the things that we want oftentimes because it makes us feel good, it, it brings us comfort. The place I would want us to get to as a church is to, to believe so firmly in our minds that, that God is good no matter what comes and we will trust him and we will stand firm, being held fast, knowing that he is faithful and he is good and he will see us through no matter what comes. No matter what you've faced, no matter how dark and bleak you feel like your life has been at times, God has been right there carrying out his will in your life. And church, I understand how much faith it takes to hear that, to to, to know that you're, you're going through something especially painful and difficult. 
Right? I could talk about the time when we lived a thousand miles away from our family. We were young and we had a, a newborn boy who's sitting right there who's as healthy as can be, but he came a month early, had a heart condition we knew nothing about, spent 17 days in the NICU. We were away from family and friends. Our daughter wasn't with us because she couldn't be in the NICU, so she was with people in the church. It was my birthday, and church, hear me and forgive me, it sucked. It was hard. And God just wanted me to trust him that no matter how bleak, no matter how dark, no matter how helpless and hopeless that moment felt in my life, just trust me. I've got it. I will see you through this. Just trust me. And sadly, I'll I'll say that I didn't. But God brought that lesson to me again years later. And so now I'm determined, not on my own ability, church, I will, as, as much as I can control it, I will never do that again. I will never question God's ability to see me through something that seems as hopeless as the Israelites must have felt when they were trapped in by mountains and sea and an army that they didn't stand a chance against. They were on foot. They were defeated by slavery. They had no weapons, and they had an army of chariots against them. They were as good as dead. And God does the impossible. So whatever you face in your life, just know that if you are in Christ, and I mean really, truly in Christ, not just a nominal Christian who claims to have believed that Christ came and lived and died and rose and you walked an aisle and you said a prayer and you got baptized and that is as far as it ever went for you. That's not what I'm talking about. That you are getting up daily. We talked about this at Men's Discipleship. That you get up daily. You get into the Word and you... You, you see who God is and you trust him in that. And you daily put to death your flesh. You wage war against the sin in your own, your own heart. And you fight like crazy to pursue righteousness, to live like your Savior. And to know that God will be faithful all along. And he will be right there with you, holding you fast. As I said, we're gonna, the musicians are going to come and we're going to close in singing. Uh, go ahead and do that now. Uh, I'm going to pray. If, if you need to talk or you need to pray, you need to respond in any way, there will be some folks over here to the side. I'll be over there. You can come and pray. You can come and talk. If you need to just sit where you are, speak to God, then do that. If you, if you need to reconcile with someone who's here or someone who's, who's out there, then church, don't delay. Just respond. Let me pray. Father God, we we thank you so much that you are so unbelievably faithful, that you are so good, and that we can trust you in everything that we face in our life. Lord, help us to know that not a single one of us here is strong enough, have enough ability in our own hearts and minds to, to save ourselves through any kinds of of trials or tribulations or difficulties that we need you, that we must 
rely upon you and trust that you are good and you are faithful and you will see us through. And Lord, in the darkest days of our, our life, to know that, Lord, that you are there, that you have ordained the events of our lives and help us to see that ultimately in the end, as hard as it might be, that we will see that you are going to carry those things out for our good. Oh God, we are so small in comparison to you. We cannot see all that you see. Father, we, we look through a knothole in the fence and we can only see so much of what's on the other side, but God, you see it all. So Father, be with us, help us, give us faith to obey, to believe. Help us to believe. And Father, help us when we don't. Carry us through our doubts. Lord, forgive us. Help us even now to respond to you in faith, trusting that you will see us through, God, no matter what. And that we can believe that because it's your will, that it is for our good. I thank you so much for your word and the lessons that we can glean from it. Help us to shape our own lives by it, Lord. We give you praise. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, stand and, and sing. If you need to pray, be over here to the side.